You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Well, I didn't authorize this. No. I did. We agreed to test sparingly on one subject. And that one subject is stunning. It's a virus. We don't know the human-related effects. The drug works well. Tell him, Linda. For starters, Koba scored a perfect 15 on the Lucas Tower. Every test result verifies its effectiveness. No more tests. What are you... Not until we have a better understanding of what we're dealing with. Look, I'll tell you exactly what we're dealing... Look, just give us a minute. Uh, excuse me, put the ant back in the cage and be gentle. Well, I'll tell you exactly what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a drug that is worth more than everything else we are developing combined. You make history, I make money. Wasn't that our arrangement? No. Risks. Don't talk to me about risks. You gave your own father an experimental drug. I could finish your career with one phone call. I'll save you the trouble, I quit. We will proceed without you. Look, you don't know what you're doing. These tests need to be contained. You have no idea if the 113 is stable, what kind of damage it can do to people. Well, that is why we test it on chips. Isn't it? Welcome, everybody, to the 602 Club. I am so excited to be here this week as we are starting a new series, um, as we are building toward War for the Planet of the Apes. And um, that means that we need to start from the beginning with these films and, and talk about Rise of the Planet of the Apes and then, of course, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And I figured I needed somebody who was super excited about this, like I am. Also, uh, what I do? What do we? What do we call those fans? Are they ape knights or I don't know, Brandon? What do we? What do we call fans like this? I, you know, I've never actually read what an ape's fan would be called. Are they just ape fans? We're just monkeys, I guess. Yeah, no, 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 because we're apes. We're apes. Yeah, remember they make that distinction in the movie, so. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I've never heard of any term used to describe ape fans. Like, I remember when I was a kid, we had the big debate because we didn't know how to say it for X-Files fans because I didn't know what a cinephile was or a something file. So we called it a Philly. Like, cause, like the only thing I'd ever seen it was a magazine. So we called it, if you're you a fan of the X-Files, filers. an X-Philly is what we called it, hmm. right? But now yeah. that I'm older, I know that it was an X-File, right? But yeah, I've never heard of yeah. anything for apes. So, uh yeah. Maybe we should, you know, we'll think about that. Let us know what you think. In fact, that's a great question. What would you call apes fans? Uh, let us know. Uh, you can find us all over the place on Twitter, TrekFM, Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. Uh, we've got our listeners-only discussion group, uh, which is a great place to talk about the things that we talk about here on Trek FM, all the shows, not just the 602 Club. Uh, you could find that on Facebook. Type Babel into the search field on Facebook because it's called the Babel Conference. 
Or if you're on the website at Trek.fm, you can hit discussion on any of the menu bars, and that'll bring you in, and you can answer this question for us. We don't know. Um, or maybe you just want to write an email, and so that means you could go over to Trek.fm slash contact. You could choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that would come to me and any of the hosts that are on that week. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I'd, I'd really love to know what we're supposed to call ape fans um, instead of maybe just ape, apers, ape, apeites, apeits, I don't know. Um I do have a question for you, though, Brandon, as we are diving into the Apes franchise. Um, now, we're going to be covering, as as it is, this trilogy that's leading up to the original Planet of the Apes. Uh, and I realize, hopefully sometime later this year, we will cover the original Planet of the Apes. Ooh. And so, uh, yeah, I, I do plan to try and work that in somewhere uh, this year. If not, we'll get it to beginning of next year uh, because it deserves to be covered. Um, but I kind of wondered when this movie came out, because it was 2011, what was your expectation going in, especially when you kind of saw the trailers and this whole thing? I was pretty excited going into it um, because it looked different. I remember in 2001 when the Tim Burton remake came out, I was very, very excited. Less for said that about one. that, the better. <laughs> I was excited for that one coming out, but I was really disappointed with the movie itself. So to see this and knowing how they were making a lot of type prequel type films at this time, I was actually quite excited when I had heard that this movie was coming out. So I was quite optimistic when I, when I was first learning of it. Yeah. It's, it's funny because, you know, I'd seen the original Planet of the apes. I, 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 the original Planet of the apes is a classic. It's fantastic as a movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd never really seen any of the other films in the series because I kind of heard mixed reviews of them and I just never got into them I never went and you know rented them or found them and so I was interested when I saw this but then I saw the previews and something about the previews just kind of left me feeling like this kind of looks dumb I don't think this looks very good um and so I didn't actually see this until later on and in fact I rented it with some friends of mine on on uh our the Apple TV uh and we just we decided to go ahead and watch it to see if it was any good. And I remember after it was over thinking, man, that was great. That was really good. I'm giving away, you know, what I thought of the movie already. But uh, Spoilers. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it was a shocker because I went into it thinking this doesn't look very good. And then, in fact, I, that same night, we actually rented the original Planet of the Apes afterwards and watched that. And, and it, what was what was so good about it is that it, it seemed to really fit, you know, like it, it made sense. And I wanted to ask you this too. It's not even on the outline, but it's something I've been thinking a lot about because everything is franchise this and franchise that, right? I'm watching the extras last night on the Blu-ray and they're talking about this movie and they mention, look, we, we would like to make more of these, but we have no idea if we'll be able to. So it felt like they kind of poured all the ideas that they had into this film, into this movie. And basically the idea was, we have to make the best Blanken movie we possibly can, because if we want to make more of these, people need to be invested. And mm -hmm. I really feel that as I watch this, that in the back of their mind, they're hoping, I really do hope this does well, because we'd like to do more. But the 
point is, is that this needs to be the movie that even if we don't make more, this stands on its own and it's a great film. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I wish more franchises would do that because I feel like so many are kind of putting the cart before the horse and this one doesn't. And it's what I think has made it so successful to this point. Yeah, I would agree with that. They they didn't hold anything back, and they, they left it as a very full movie, and there's a lot of things going on. And th- with the way that franchises are nowadays, this movie itself could have been a trilogy had they flushed it out a little bit more, right? You've got the the early experiments that could lead up to the first movie, and then they've got the second movie could be Caesar living with the family, and then the third movie is Caesar having to go and live uh, in the zoo, right? Like almost right there with the way, uh, franchises work nowadays, this one movie would be a trilogy. And I'm glad that it's condensed because it makes it a very tight story. It trims all the fat off of the story and makes it so that you're captivated the whole way through. But at the end of it, we're left with these apes in this park so that they can tell more stories so that it's not done. Well, and, and what's so smart about it again, they leave you with the apes in the park. They leave you with the virus. And if you never saw anything again, you know exactly why everything is the way it is in the original mm-hmm. film. Like, it sets it up perfectly. Right. So that if there isn't anything else in the middle, you don't feel like you're left out. You can you can build all of that in your imagination. And I think you're absolutely right. It's it's almost as if they just threw everything in the kitchen sink they could into this movie because they wanted it to be the best apes movie and the best prequel apes mm-hmm. movie that it could be. And they didn't want to feel like that they cheapened you. So they didn't leave you with any hanging threads to the point where you're frustrated if you don't get to see more of them in the same way say like um i think of the amazing spider-man films where they're clearly leaving all these breadcrumbs for future movies but then of course they don't finish that series because there's only two of them and now we have a whole other spider-man and so it's just like this doesn't do that and if you ask me this is the template for making movies in the sense of uh, if you have any desire to make a franchise whatsoever and i'm thinking specifically of you the mummy um, don't put the cart before the horse. Make the best stinking movie you possibly can. Don't worry about the other stuff later. In fact, write so well that you struggle to write a sequel if you get to the sequel because you did such a good job with the first one. Make yourself work through that if you get the sequel. Um, and, you know, I, I think these films specifically, gosh, I'm already ruining it, what we think, but really... It's something I've been really frustrated with in Hollywood. Um, and uh, to me, I was I was watching this last night. It just struck me how wonderful these films have been done. And it's because I don't feel like they've been holding back in any way. Uh, each one is meant to stand on its own, tell you more about the future. Um, and if they never get to make another one, you don't feel cheated. And I think that's such great storytelling, you know? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, I, I don't think I can add anything to that. I think, you, I think you summed up really nicely there. 
Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's just something, uh, you know, I, I, I felt really passionate about lately as we've been looking at franchise films and, you know, something like uh, The Mummy came out or, you know, uh, looking through um, the way Marvel and DC have done their films and all that kind of stuff. And it, it just seems to me that there's something in Hollywood that they need to just remember to go back, make a movie. Don't make content, you know. I think what the problem is now that we're now that you're talking about this here I think that the problem is that television is so good and television storytelling is designed to leave these threads to tell stories over a couple of seasons and because television has become so good they're trying to bring that element into movies but it's not as successful because the story itself like a movie isn't as long as a season and there's too much time in between the sequels. So they're trying to bring what's great about television into the theaters, and it's just not quite working. Right. No, I completely agree with you. And I think it, it's a real problem because, you know, I have no problem with there being sequels to movies, you know. Um, and, and I think... That... Neither do I. And I just want to give a shout out to our good friend Ken Tripp there and tell him, Jaws the Revenge, baby. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you know, if you do it well, it works. And but part of that, I think, and, and, and this even does work on TV too. write yourself into the corner because you your first season was so good that it's hard to write your second season. That Your mm. second season's so good, it's hard to write your third season, you know, that you're not. Uh, leaving things out or, or you know, planning for the rainy day for the next season. Uh, just do your best work now and be challenged to make your best work come after that because you have to have your best work to best your best work. Right. So, yeah, I actually, yeah, it's, it's a good conversation. It's an interesting one because, as, as um, you know, right as we're recording this, this is before the movie has actually come out, War for the Planet of the Apes. But, I haven't read any reviews. All I have seen is that everything has been glowing so far about the movie. So, yeah. uh, you know, and, and part of that is had me thinking about this whole idea. Um, and, you know, watching the movie, too, I was really interested because um, the whole movie seems to be about control and human hubris and... I was really interested in the way that this works out throughout the movie because, I mean, there's a whole line in the movie about, you know, you you have to learn that you can't control everything and some things aren't meant to be changed. And yet this whole movie is about trying to change things that maybe we should be more careful with what we're doing. I thought that was really fascinating to watch that whole story play out because it really plays out throughout the entire movie and it and it plays out between the two characters specifically of Will and uh, his boss Stephen Jacobs and I thought that was that was really interesting to watch them go back and forth with each other. See, I think that's interesting that you think the theme of this is about control because the theme that I get out of this movie is love and love for family that's what i see when i see this movie i see james franco's character doing everything he possibly can for the love of his father to save his father and bring him back from this debilitating disease that he's got and also the love that he has for caesar you know and how caesar becomes a part of his family so to me 
the theme of this movie is family. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, and I think that gets into the question because uh, there's a, a real sense of hubris of man trying to do something that's good, which is to cure disease. Yeah. But the other side of that equation is that his boss is allowing him to do this research because it's not driven by altruism. It's driven by greed. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole back and forth between that because you, I felt that, that rustling in my, in my nature of, I, I understand that he's doing this for the, you know, good reasons, but also what he doesn't realize is those good reasons are making him do something that's really dangerous and in a sense, trying to control things that he maybe isn't meant to control, you know, in, in, a, in a real sense, trying to kind of play God almost. But that's what that's what we've that's what we are. That's the brains that we've been given. I mean, look at how many diseases we've cured in our time and look at how many accidents we've had to to cure these diseases. Like one of the most amazing ones is uh, penicillin. You know, like yeah, that's yeah. come from mold, you know, like these accidents that have come across these cures and the accident that discovered that, it, that there was extra benefits, which made Caesar smarter. But again, he mm -hmm. went back to the drawing Great. board because the original cure that he made for his father stopped working because his father adapted even more. His father's body didn't take the medication anymore, so he needed to go and try and make something stronger, right? So it's not, he, he's not right. trying to make this 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 thing to make people smarter he simply wants to save his father no absolutely but the thing about it is is that what he's using is something that is very dangerous which is he's legitimately created a virus to attack a disease mm -hmm. and and that's what i'm saying like it, it's not as though it's a bad thing what he wants to do which is to be able to cure alzheimer's and be able to cure his father yeah. right that's that's there's nothing wrong with that right right but it's it's the way in which he's going about it is so dangerous but it's almost his it's almost his love that blinds him to the danger to which he's playing with the fire in which he's playing with you see what i'm saying so that's where it's like it it gets really muddy. So it's it's love, but it's also this desire to destroy what's destroying what he loves and then playing with things that could if you know, we see, obviously we know, are going to destroy the human race. Right. Like almost completely annihilate humanity as we know it. Uh, they're gonna change the course of the planet because of one guy's decision to and it's almost like an Anakin thing, right? Uh, Anakin wants to save Padme because he loves her, or he says he loves her. That's a whole other discussion. But you, you see what I'm saying? Like, it, he, and and his his decision then to support Palpatine changes the entire galaxy from a an act which is not in and of itself a bad thing, mm -hmm. but with how he goes about it is. And and I feel like. That's the struggle I get throughout this whole movie as I'm watching it. Like I want to root for Will, but also what he's doing is so dangerous, and we know that it is. Um, it, it it's 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 hard because you're struck with the same feelings he is of of you 
want to see his father survive, but you're also worried about the rest of the human race that you know is not going to survive so well because of the actions he's taking. Right. But at the time when you're watching the movie, you don't realize that's going to happen until the credits start rolling. And James Franco's character himself does take a stance of caution as the movie changes. Now, I'd mentioned something to you at the beginning, but on the other side of the club here, or whatever you call it, and... Uh, the other side I, of the bar, whatever. The other side of the bar. And I, yeah. I had mentioned <laughs> that I didn't quite like how James Franco's boss at the beginning was very cautious and James Franco was pushy. And then afterwards, James Franco became cautious and his boss became pushy. I didn't buy his boss becoming pushy. But now that we're talking about it, James Franco became more cautious because he knew that he was changing this drug into becoming something more dangerous but he was still trying to be cautious about it right he's like okay he, we got to slow down you don't know what well, you're dealing with yep and and no i think you're absolutely onto something but they're coming at it from two different angles yes um so his boss is always coming at it from the desire for financial gain for the company and for himself there's nothing altruistic about you know uh steven jacobs at the beginning all he's worried about is is this testing and everything because he's worried about the bottom line and how it's going to affect the company. And of course, as everything goes to hell in a handbasket at the very beginning with the test um, and what they think happened with the test, uh, all he cares about is the bottom line. The moment that he realizes that this works at least has some success. I mean, we have, what, five years that his dad is completely cured of, of, of Alzheimer's and, and is even smarter than before. When he realizes that not only can we cure a, a, a disease like this or at least give somebody hope, but we could also make people smarter, Like we, the, that clicks in his brain of, like, this is going to be the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. The reason, though, that Will... I think changes, the change that comes in him is that his father's dead. He never, ha- he doesn't have the same driving motivation, the same thing pushing him so hard. And it allows him, I think, to see the danger that he's actually been in the whole time that he couldn't see before because his obsessive love for his father and his need to try and change that situation to kind of control it have been maybe not making him as um, discerning as he should have been the whole time. And once his father's removed from the situation, I think he can see more clearly because there isn't anything blinding him to that fact. Does that make sense? And that's why those two characters kind of make that switch. But it's not really a switch all that much. It's just that the more rational person that Will has always been comes back because the kind of the irrational feelings of like love and and wanting to save somebody have gone away finally because his father's not there anymore to be driving that. See, but that switch happened before his father died, right? He went back to the company to do the research because the medicine was losing its effect and he wanted to try and make something more potent. Right, but remember his father rejects the medicine and he's died. But that's after he ha- creates the new one. 
Right. But my point is, is that he, I think he has the switch because something in him realizes that there isn't something quite right with what he's created in the 13. And he's wanting to slow down and do this correctly, make sure they're really testing it. But part of that is because he's not driven by the compulsion anymore of his father being there needing the medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think he, he, he kind of goes back to what would have been his normal MO, which would be to do everything very methodically, very carefully, make sure that this works correctly. Um, because there isn't that extra push. Okay, so we might be just a little bit off on our thing here, but it might be the same thing. See, I interpreted that he switched his attitude prior, like a little bit before that, and he's I guess he's a little more cautious now because he thought that the original one was this wonder drug that stopped working. So he's like, okay, if this wonder drug stops working, I better take my time to make sure that the new wonder drug stays working. Yeah, so, what yeah. I, I mean... I mean, from the timeline I'm remembering it, having watched it, it he doesn't make the the actual switch until his father's died. And I think it's before it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, let us know who's right, uh, listeners. So that's that's what you're here for. Um, but I, I think I think it just it really does. It makes for an interesting discussion on the idea of making these kind of decisions and the fact that there really is a sense of human hubris to this because neither of these two guys are actually necessarily truly thinking about all the ramifications of things and part of it is is that the scientist who can make this happen will is driven by something that's pushing him to not follow the rules that are there for a reason, which is to keep the human race safe when doing something as extensive as these kind of drug trials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, I mean, it, it, that's what I love about the. I, I think I, this movie is so rich and so deep because it touches on so many different parts of humanity, and, the, and it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't demonize, I don't think necessarily, for the most part, those two characters, and it and it doesn't glorify them either. It just kind of presents them to you as like this is, this is who we are, and these are the dangers with which we face as the human race as we try to do these different things. Uh, and I think that's that's pretty fascinating. Um, it also kind of leads. I mean, I think about the whole idea of we we talked about love, you know, that Will loves his father and he loves Caesar. He comes to really care about him. Uh, obviously, Caesar is much more than just an ape at that point. He really is a person, you know. He and there's this real power of betrayal for Caesar, and it was really interesting to watch that turn when he thinks that he's been betrayed by Will. And finds a new family to protect. And I thought that was really interesting to see the way in which, no matter who you are, you know, whether you're Caesar, the super smart ape, or you're just a human in general, how we as human beings react when we feel that we've been betrayed. Yeah, it's, 
it's it's a hurtful scene because we like I see the love that James Franco like I, I'm sorry with the bad with the characters' names. I know James Franco's name more, but the the love that James Franco has for Caesar and how he has to get him taken away because Caesar attacked this neighbor, right? And with with Caesar feeling betrayed and finding this new family of apes, it's also fascinating to watch because it's watching him figure out how to manipulate the system within this new this new house that he's in, this cage, right? And how he's like, okay, so I got to make this person be my friend. I got to make this person be my friend. And then we got to go after this person to make him su- submit to me. And it's really fascinating to watch, right? And I, if I completely believe it, that as an ape is getting smarter, he would figure these things out. Which <laughs> the best line of the movie has to be when Maurice signs to him. Apes are stupid. Because <laughs> Caesar's like rationalizing with him about how, you know, uh, one ape by himself, you know, gets broken with the stick, but then he puts many together and like apes stronger together. Right. And Maurice is like, apes are stupid. <laughs> As you watch the apes fight over nothing on right. the ground. And I think um, what's so interesting is the way in which the different and it, it's it's a causality thing, you know, like each thing is leads the characters to make a different decision. And Caesar's a part of that. And so he sees Will has betrayed me. I'm in this new place, but do I really deserve to be here? And if I'm going to get out of this, the only way to do that is these apes need to be smart like me if I'm going to survive. Yeah. If we're going to survive. And I thought, man, that's a that's a really, you know, the the idea of you can't survive alone. You have to have somebody with you. Yeah, you got it. And he's smart enough to know what he has to do in order to make these other apes smart. He's watched Will give the medicine to the to his dad. Right. So he knows what this medicine does and how it helped his dad because he watched him. He watched him at the beginning when he wasn't so smart. Right. So it is a case of family. So here we are again with the the theme of family. And he's got this new family of apes that that Caesar has to take charge of and become the father figure for this new family. Well, and, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, even though Caesar's been betrayed by Will, he also acts like Will. Like, he's been raised to value other people. He's been raised to uh, protect family. You know, all of those things. And I think that makes it for a really fascinating uh, thing that even though, like a child who might feel betrayed by their, their parents, it's it's kind of hard to completely ignore everything that your parents taught you that you actually know is right. Uh, and so, you know, Caesar, then as they're making their grand escape, their ape escape, uh, it's uh, the great ape escape. <laughs> Sorry. It's, anyway, um, <laughs> that he is also trying to protect as much human life as possible. Like he's not he's not taking human life needlessly. You know, he's trying to make sure that the other apes are respecting that human life uh, because he knows it's valuable, and their only goal is to get to the forest and disappear. Right. Um, their goal isn't to massacre humans. And and I thought that just, 
it's so interesting to watch the way in which the the morality that Will has and what he's kind of brought um, by example Caesar to see. Caesar then, even though he feels betrayed by Will, can't take away the good influence that Will and his father have been on him. Yeah, exactly. I think you're right. I'm wondering for you, you know, I remember when this movie first came out, and part of, I think, my trepidation about it and thinking, like, eh, that doesn't look very good, was was honestly the casting. Uh, and part of that, w- the main part was this James Franco. Like, I just, like, you know, at that point in 2011, I was like, could he really, you know, like, am I going to... Why do I don't know, people there's something not like James Franco? I don't know. I just, I, you know, I, I do like James Franco <laughs> now. I think it's in 2011. I hadn't really seen him in anything that I can remember that really made me think, oh, he's going to carry this movie. Um, I am glad that uh, Tobey Maguire w- was not in this film. Um, Tobey Maguire I, was, super, was Spider-Man, right? Yeah, no offense yeah. to Tobey Maguire, but I think just James Franco really does a fantastic job in this movie and i think it's it's his ability to be aloof sometimes as the the scientist but then be the caring son and in you know the loving parent to an you know a super smart ape uh he just i don't know he just sells it for me and even rewatching it i was just again impressed by his acting chops in this film yeah i don't i don't know i don't understand why people i've never heard anything good about james franco and i'm like <laughs> Everything I've seen him in, he's fine. I don't have any problems with him at all. It's I don't know. So I uh, I think he's fine in the movie, and it doesn't he doesn't bother me as a as an actor, and I think he's great in the role. Well, and I mean, he kills that like three minutes that he's in Alien Covenant. So you know, uh, but no, I he's really good, and, and I I liked the way that him and John Lithgow uh, as his father Charles interacted. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really good. And I bought that they were a family. That, right. That, you know, and I, it was, I felt like that was just really good casting. It was one of those things where um, you don't always buy a parent-child relationship with actors like that. But for some reason, I thought that they did a, a bang-up job with that. Well, that might also be because of uh, John Lithgow. I mean, John Lithgow is amazing in just about everything yeah. he does, right? So. That he could be holding up the the two of them together, but <laughs> yeah, no, and he's I mean he uh gosh he's in the crown as um Winston Churchill, and he's just fantastic. If you haven't seen the crown, it's on Netflix. It's totally worth checking out. But um, and then uh, I thought David Oyelowo playing Steve Jacobs. I really love David Oyelowo. He's so good, uh, and he. I mean, he was in Selma. He's fantastic. Uh, he plays the voice of Callus and Rebels. He's he's an incredible actor, and I I just every role he's in, I feel like he's able to inhabit that role. So I don't see him the actor; I just see whoever he's playing. And I thought he did a phenomenal job. I recognize him from something like nothing that you've just mentioned, but I, I know I've seen him a few places before. I just can't remember off the top of my head what movies he's been in. But again, with his character, I just I don't buy the change in his character that. The caution to when James Franco just comes up to him and says, look, I tested it on my dad. He's like, "Okay, go, go, go and make me the money. It's just it's too quick a change. Again, is that really a change? I I, I think as I explained it, I don't think it's a change. I think everything that he does is driven by one bottom line, and that's money. 
At the beginning, it's money. At the end, it's money. And it's all about where he can make the Benjamins. It feels it feels like a change to me, and I don't know why. I guess okay. I, I know what you're saying. I see what you're saying, that it just the way that he does it in that scene, and he's just so abrupt with he's like, okay, I'll give you all your research back, and you go and you find me this thing. And I don't know, I just, that's the only part of the movie that I don't like, and yeah. it's just a thorn stick it in my hand here that I just can't get out. Yeah, I, I think part of that too is he says this could make us more money than any everything else that we have in the pipeline combined. Mm-hmm. And so basically he's seeing not just millions, he's seeing billions of right. dollars for the company. And I think that's the motivation, you know, and people do a lot less for money. Yeah. So uh, especially businessmen. So um, no offense if you're a businessman listening to this. So I'm just, I'm we're, we're thinking of, you know, uh, uh, like, um, oh gosh, what's that great The Hollywood movie? stereotype of businessmen. Yeah, no, but I'm specifically thinking of The Big Short. Watch The Big Short and you'll understand what I'm talking about when, I, when I'm mentioning like big businessmen type uh, and women. They're, they're those two. So what, I guess, uh, you know, Brian Cox is always good, but God, Tom Felton, I, that guy cannot not play a jerk. Like he's Malfoy. In the Harry Potter films, he's Malfoy he's, in this. Yeah, basically, he's just Malfoy on steroids in this because he's like such a d bag the whole time. It's just awful. Yeah, I don't. I didn't like him in the role because it like it was just Malfoy again. And like every time I see it, I'm like, it's just Malfoy, and it's like that poor guy. I don't know. Has he been in anything else? What else well, has he been in, in? Yeah, he's in the Flash actually in season three. Okay. Um, and I think he actually might continue on into season four, which would be great. Uh, is he Malfoy he plays, in the Flash? He plays somebody who is uh, prickly, but has a heart, and so that he he and he does that really well. And I I actually really enjoyed him in the show for season three for Flash. So if you kind of want to see him have a little bit different character arc, I think you know that happens. But I, yeah, unfortunately, he's definitely been typecast. Yeah. To, just kind of play the jerk Poor kid. Um, and, and not the Steve Martin type of jerk. So yeah. uh, I, I didn't yeah. like that. They gave him the, the one liner callbacks to the original planet of the apes movies. Like the, it's a madhouse. It's a madhouse. And the get your stinking paws off me. You're I'm like, Oh, you don't have to do that. Yeah. They're, I mean, and, and they definitely make callbacks uh, in this film. There are a lot of them. Um, some of them are a lot more subtle. Just yeah, with, in your uh, notes, I didn't catch a lot of those ones. Yeah, um, you know, a, a lot of them. I, I was. It's cool watching the extras. If you've never seen the extras on the Blu-ray, totally worth it. Some great stuff. Uh, but they 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 show you the ways in which they mimic the first movie with different things and different shots, but done with different types of characters. So it's not quite as in your face. But if you're a huge fan, you'll catch it. So it's it's really good. And of course, you know, the biggest one is is the Aries. Uh, that is leaving Earth during this film, like you just see it in the news, uh, and then of course they go missing, and that's the same ship that Charlton Heston is on, and you know, so um, I I think that's just fantastic. So uh, you know, it, again, it was one of those things where they they built the film, so if they never made any others, this movie completely leads into the original Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. um, which brings us to the idea of bringing the apes to life and you know this movie would not have been successful if not for the work done by people like 
uh, Andy Serkis and uh, Terry Notary. Both of them have worked with Weta Digital, who did the effects for this film. And it's such an amazing job that they do. Now, obviously, this is a few years back, and so it's not quite as perfect as it it looked at the it there. But mm-hmm. still, this movie looks phenomenal, and Caesar is just an incredible creation. Well, they had so much practice working with Andy Serkis. I mean, they had three Hobbit films. He was King Kong. And now he's this, right? So, I mean, like, they've had a lot of work and a lot of experience working with Andy Serkis. And, uh, you know, I don't know, poor Andy Serkis. I mean, how many times have we seen his face? Like, the start of The Lord of the Rings 3? Like, that's the only time we've seen his face, I think, in a movie. He's always uh, Well, and he's in uh, Age of Ultron, and he'll be in Black Panther film as well. He plays okay. Claw. So. Okay. Yeah, so he's like, he, but usually he's always... CG. I mean, he does an amazing job. Like the apes in this are are really, really, really good. And it, it was something that they really wanted to do with the Tim Burton one is try and make them look a little bit more realistic. And they definitely succeeded with that. But in this movie here, like, yeah, like it's it's really, really well done. And you can see that it's CGI, like especially when it's a baby ape, right? When Caesar's baby, but it still looks really good. Like, the only reason it looks CGI is because it just doesn't fit with the background quite right. But the ape looks real. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. It, it, You know, obviously it's a all special effects are, mm-hmm. and, and CGI effects, uh, just like special effects, are things to which take work. And it's always a work in progress. And I think the, what is great for the most part is that these really do hold up. And most of it, I think, is the fact that... The way that they do it with Andy and they do the motion capture and especially his faces and everything, it it really gets the emotion behind the eyes. They work so hard to get all of that on screen and the little movements that he does, especially when he's becoming more and more cognizant, is just phenomenal. And so I, I, I think... Weta Digital really set itself apart, uh, obviously with the Lord of the Rings, with Gollum and everything. They did Kong, uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong, which I think looks phenomenal. And then this, I mean, they just have built themselves a resume of doing incredible work. And I really, you know, I really love the, the, the work they did here. And, and honestly, if they hadn't done all that work, it just wouldn't have... It, it has to work, otherwise this movie doesn't work. Yeah, you know, I, you can't go the Tim Burton route uh, and it work at all. Right. Or even the original apes, like with the, the rounded muzzles and whatnot, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that works for that time period because we know what special effects could do at that point, especially the prosthetic effects, yeah. you know? And I have no problem with that because they're doing the best they can. And that it, it still looks good even on screen today. You know, because they did such phenomenal work with those prosthetics. Uh, you know, here, I think the, the effects work so well is because they put so much time and effort into it. And what works the best is the way in which they capture the emotion for the character of Caesar. And then, of course, those other apes that are really important, like a Maurice. Uh, and I, I think it just leads you into 
wanting more. And I think that's the thing that this movie does so well is that you end this movie thinking, man, I hope they make another one of these. You know, that's how I felt when I saw it, you know, on, uh, you know, home viewing. I was like, I really want another one of these because this is great stuff. So um, I guess the only one thing I want to ask you, because you're the music guy, um, Patrick Doyle does the music for this one. Um, and I just wanted your opinion on what you thought of the the soundtrack here. I think he did a very good job with it. I think there's a lot of really good music in it. And I remember that I did watch the uh, the uh, the behind the scenes thing on the music for this, and it was fun to watch this guy talk about how he made that that one song where he's like, "I got a cookie for you. I got a cookie for you." He's like, he like when he's handing out those cookies to the apes, he like made this song go to that beat and it's really fun to watch him talk about it he's like really you could tell that this this guy's having a fun time doing his job as a composer so uh you know i, I do remember seeing that uh that behind the scenes footage on the on the disc itself but i i think it's a really good score for the movie myself yeah um you know patrick doyle sometimes i really like his work and sometimes i don't um, like, I don't really love his work for Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. It's too brassy. It's mm-hmm. it's too bright for that film. It just doesn't, it, it irks me, especially after Williams. Um, it just doesn't work as well as it needs to. Here, I think he does a, a good job of setting the template for these films. And, and on, obviously, too, this movie is set so much more in a modern time sense, and they're there isn't as much otherworldliness to it, like with visiting like the ape culture, which we'll do in the next film and all. So I think he does a really admirable job uh, of creating some pretty nice themes that are, are, are really good uh, in here for Caesar and everything and some great moments of swelling music, you know, when Caesar first gets the mirror woods and everything and all that's just, it's, it's really nice. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, very happy with the work that he did and, and you know for both of us and we both love soundtracks and so it's probably not one that i would like listen to a ton or anything but i think for the film itself it, it works really well so, yeah it suits it well for sure yeah absolutely and and honestly that's the most important thing you know whether i want to listen to it a lot when i'm at home or working or whatever it, it just needs to work for the movie and that's the main goal of any composer is to make that happen. So Yeah. I mean, I had John Jackson Miller on Melodic Treks, and we talked about the music for Escape from the Planet of the Apes, which I love that movie. And the music fits the movie very well. But on its own, it's not a very good soundtrack to listen to, you know, like just by itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there are plenty of them like that. But their goal is to service the material of the film and not necessarily be something that you want to sit and listen to, you know, while you're doing whatever at home or out or whatnot. So, um, I want to add one more thing. I want to just, add, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but I want to add the ending scene, like in the end credits, the post credits stuff with the, uh, oh yeah, let's do it. The, uh, the pilot and how it just shows it spreading and whatnot. Like, I, I've talked to my wife about this. I have a fear that when, when the world ends, it's going to be because of a plague. 
right? So I totally believe this. You didn't watch too many zombie movies? Not zombies, just a, a disease like this where people are going to get sick and just die. And it's going to wait like The Stand, you know, this. I recent, I'm recent. i following along. Mike Schindler's doing a great podcast over on the Talk Film Society called Soderbergh 2828. And uh, so I've been watching all Steven Soderbergh's film and he did Contagion. Right, so I recently watched yeah, that too. Yeah, that movie is like <laughs> freaky, scary. Yeah, I totally believe that that's how the world's going to end, and I I really love this movie as a prequel to the original Planet of the Apes movie. You know, I I don't like those time travel stories that rely on going back in time to set up the events, like the Terminator, right? Like. John Connor's father goes back in time to have a child with Sarah Connor and it's John Connor. Like, I don't, I don't like those time travel stories and Planet of the Apes is that, you know, they go back in time and escape from the Planet of the Apes and have their baby in the past. And that becomes Caesar, which leads the revolt. Like that's how the sequels of the Planet of the Apes go. I don't like that type of time travel because I don't believe it. But this, having somebody develop a, a cure for Alzheimer's and it makes Testing on apes makes them smarter. Totally buy it. I think it's a perfect prequel movie, and I love it. So, you know, that's kind of... I just kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent there for those, but if I'm going to rate this movie... You don't need to... You don't don't need to... (laughs) Because I absolutely agree with you, because that, I think, is a fantastic ending scene, and I think it is really freaky, uh, because... It, it does make you think about all of those type of movies, whether it is like a contagion or it is kind of like the zombie apocalypse or any. I mean, that really, um, yeah, that freaks me the heck out, you know? And so I, this does such a great job of, of setting up the future for these films. I, I absolutely love it. So, no, you're, you're absolutely right to call that out, Brandon. Good, good yeah, right on. If I'm going to rate this movie, I got to give it four and a half out of five. Awesome swinging through trees, montages through lots of different weather. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> I love that scene. <laughs> yeah, that is a, that is a really good scene. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to say that to me, this is a solid four out of five. I'm not supposed to be in this Mustang crashes. Uh, so I, yeah. Um, my wife turns to me. She's like, hasn't that guy next door just learned not to bother the people next door? Like, nothing good happens when he bothers the people next door. So, um, no, this is this really is a good movie. And it's a fantastic way to reintroduce the Planet of the Apes series. Uh, because mm-hmm. honestly, from everything I've heard, I haven't seen them all, but the Planet of the Apes series just kind of continues to go downhill. <laughs> After the first one, the original with Charlton Heston, now, and I, I, I think the third one is just as good as the first. I think it's well. There you go. There yeah. you go. So that means I definitely need to dive into those sometime. But yes, these really bring it back to prominence in a fantastic and very smart way. And yeah. let's hope uh, that that two and then of course three that's coming out do the same. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. We really do appreciate it. It's uh, phenomenal to get a chance to do this show. I love doing this show. Uh, it's it, If you can't tell, this really is a heart and soul passion of mine to do. And I thank uh, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson for making that possible. Uh, they are our associate producers here on the 602 Club through Patreon. 
And uh, Patreon is really important to this network because uh, with all the shows that we do, there's absolutely no way that we can afford by ourselves the people who put this network together, do the shows for each and every week. We just can't afford to do it without you. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can become part of our team and help support all the great stuff that we do here each and every week. I hope that you will do that. Um, We've got some great perks for you. Brandon runs the Patreon's uh, zone and everything Patreon-level related. He does a phenomenal job of making sure we can get you exclusive content, Patreon roundtables are working, all that kind of stuff. Again, it's patreon.com slash trekfm where you can be a part of our team. Now, Brandon, uh, before we get out of here and uh, before you go hit the banana bucket, where can we find you? Uh, well, you can find me eating deep fried bananas and peanut butter and banana sandwiches. And you can find Always me- money in the banana stand. <laughs> you can find me on Melodic Treks, which is all about the music of Star Trek. And you can find me... Uh, with my friend Floyd co-hosting Warp 5, which is Trek FM's Star Trek Enterprise podcast, which is a lot of fun. And you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network uh, with my friends Chris and Tom as we do Good Evening and Alfred Hitchcock podcast. And we just had episode 5 released this week, uh, and which is our very, very first Hitchcock film that we got to cover. We were doing some of his early life in the first couple of episodes so if you're excited to check out some silent films join us over there awesome i do love me some Alfred hitchcock so yeah go check that out um good stuff you can find me on twitter at matt rushing zero two you can also find me here on the network with chris jones uh, doing the orb which is our deep space nine podcast make sure you check it out it's a lot of fun uh you can also find me on the nerd party network where i am doing a few shows um i do aggressive negotiations with john mills where we talk about star wars and that's a blast i hope that you will check that out we just have a great time talking about something different in star wars uh we've uh, recently been diving into some really cool things we've had some uh great listeners give us some ideas of shows that we've done and so check that out i'm doing owl post a harry potter podcast with drea kaufman and we're walking through each and every chapter of harry potter which is really cool because harry potter just turned 20 a couple of days ago as the recording of this podcast on uh june 26th the book has been out for 20 years the first one so it's the perfect time to celebrate harry potter with owl post And last but not least, I'm doing a brand new podcast called Cinema Stories. And this is all about film through the lens of faith. And uh, we've done a few shows now. We, uh, our first show, we talked about Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Uh, We did Wonder Woman. We did the live action Cinderella film from Disney that came out a few years ago. And our newest episode is on Man of Steel. I hope you'll check out the show. You can find all of these on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast catchers, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, whatever you use, you can find Cinema Stories and every other show that I'm a part of. So thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back. Thank you.